Um, this time, if any of the children need to go through this time, here's your chance to go up along the side and go through there. And that would be great. We'd have, that, have you there. Okay, here they go. There they go. Well, let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be here today to hear the good news of the gospel, of what you've done for us, what you're doing in us and through us, and what you're yet going to do. We would ask, Father, that you would help us as we hear the scriptures, that Father would not go in one ear and out the other, but it was something that would go deep into our heart. As we listen to the scriptures that you've given us, we pray, Father, that you'd give us understanding Give us the strength to be able to know, Father, what you have for us. And Lord, we pray that this would all resound to your glory and that we would grow in you and we would understand your faithfulness and your goodness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The message this morning, if you notice, it's what is called not ashamed. And you can be understanding quickly where that's coming from here in the book of Romans that we're in. Not ashamed. The, the passage this morning is going to be important. I want to begin by describing and telling you a little bit about one of the things that happened a long, long time ago because it goes right with our passage this morning. It was July 1st, 1523. Even Tom McCullough wasn't even at that point. Oh, that's okay. That was 1523. There were two young men uh, named Heinrich Vos and Johann Esch. They were both from like we would call today Holland. And these men had been very much impacted by a monk who was in big trouble by the name of Martin Luther. He had heard about him, and he'd gotten books of his, and he'd read the scriptures. And when he read it, he was so, these two men were so impacted by the, by the fact that here we can have a relationship with God, not by our merits, but what Christ has done for us. And so he was very, these two guys were very much taken in by the, what we would call the Protestant Reformation that was going on. This is very early when this was happening. And Luther was in danger too, but he was being protected by one of the leaders. But some of these guys were not being protected. And so what happened is Heinrich Voss and Johann Esch, they were caught by the group that was opposed to them. And they took them in and they said, we're going to burn you at the stake if you don't recant. What does that mean? Well, you need to say that I was wrong, this is not true, everything Martin Luther said is wrong, and you need to do this. And if you don't do it, we'll burn you at the stake. And so they gave him some more time, said, we'll give you another couple of days. We want you to think about it, because we're serious about it. If you don't t t deny that what Luther said was wrong, said, we'll do it, we're going to kill you. So finally the day came. They put all this stuff there, they put all this kind of wood and things, and they tied them up, and they tied them up very tight, and they poured oil on it, and they said, this is your last chance. And they said, no, we believe this is what Christ has told us. We are saved by God's grace, not by our, by our actions. There's nothing we can do to earn what God wants to freely give us. They said, okay, that's it. And they lit the fire, and the fire burned. And they burned up until there was like nothing left. And what was sad, obviously it was a great tragedy, 
But also what happened is many other people started experiencing the same thing, men and women, some who were beheaded, some who were drowned, some were burned as these two men were. And they recognized that there's a cost of following Christ. They put them in and they burned them. Now think about this. This is 1523. Now in Iraq and Afghanistan and some other places, Christians again are suffering for what they believed what God had taught them in the scriptures. And so what we have this morning, we have a passage here in the book of Romans. It's one of the most wonderful, powerful passages. It's one of these passages that I would have to say as a pastor, you read it and you go, how in the world can you express this in the right way to make it right? Because it is so overwhelmingly powerful. And so I'm you know, certainly willing to give it a shot, but I recognize this is so deep and significant and yet it's not it's here for us to be able to hear it and so this morning what we're going to be doing we just want to do a little bit quick review over what's been going on for those who maybe were not here last week or don't remember from last week and so we'll go over that real quickly and so the review from last week is this Paul is really this is like he's starting off his, his book that he's telling us and he's getting ready and if you remember from last week he says he's, here's how he started he said Paul a slave of Christ Jesus called as an apostle singled out for God's good news the good news is the gospel which he promised long ago through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord who is a descendant of David according to the flesh notice he had all the right things he was established as the powerful son of God by the resurrection from the dead according from the spirit of holiness we have received grace and apostleship we mentioned last week that word grace is such a significant word in the life of the believer we have received grace and apostleship through him through Christ to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations already we're getting a picture saying this is not just a message for some this is a message for all who will come to Christ so on the obedience of faith among all the nations on behalf of his name, including yourselves. Remember, Paul is writing a letter to the church that is in Rome. And so he's writing, including yourselves who belong to Christ Jesus by calling to all of you who are in Rome, loved by God, called to saints. And he says, grace to you and peace from our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful way he begins it. And he wants to make sure that they understand, saying, my role is for you to understand the gospel, and we want to take it to the world. And what he does in these next couple of verses is extremely important. Let me show you what I mean. In this passage, we have, we're going to be focusing only on this little section of Romans 1 to 18. He's going to be talking about the fact of what he wants to bring the gospel to the world and how he's going to go, how about to do that. But to do that, you need to understand, he's going to tell us, of what do we mean by knowing God. So we'll look at this passage, if you would. So we're going to pick this up at verse 8, if you're following in your Bible. So he says this, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. Now, he's obviously exaggerated in one sense. I don't think the Hawaiians have heard the gospel yet, or the Chinese. But in their world, in the world that they knew of, in that Mediterranean world of Rome and Greece, he was saying the gospel is going out. We've got to remember, you know, here we have many, many Christians in America. We're thankful for that. 
But where he, when he was at and where he was ministering, the reality was Christianity was a tiny little group in a huge sea of other, men, men, of other, other, other beliefs of other people. And so what he's saying is, you know, it, God has been working through me to bring this gospel to the world. So he says, because of the news of your faith, it's being reported in all the world. People saying, what is this group? Who are these Christians? What are they about? And of course, as you know, many of them suffered because they had weird ideas of who the Christians were. But notice what he said in verse 9. And he says, for God, whom I serve with my spirit and telling the good news, the good news is again that word gospel about his son, is my witness that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it's somehow in God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. Succeed in coming to you. So his point is, I'd love to get to Rome. Rome is the capital. Rome is where everything happens. Rome is the place. And I know there's already churches started there, but I would love to spend time with you, encourage you, finding out what you're doing. Is there areas where I can help you? And so he said, I am so much want to be able to do this. Now notice what he says in this next verse. For I want very much to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And then to be, we could be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. In other words, you can share with me and I can share with you and we can see how God is working with us. What have you heard? Who's been working here? What, how are the churches doing? And he's saying, I'm looking forward to go there to do that. And what he does now is he moves on to this section that is one of the most significant passages in the New Testament. And we'll see it here in just a few moments. He says, now I want you to know, brothers, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now notice that phrase, just as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul's obviously Jewish, Jewish background, and yet he's saying here, but we're not just here trying to bring Jewish people to faith in Christ. And he's saying, of course, it's like its kind, the church that we're, in, we're partnering with. That's exactly what they're trying to do. But he's saying, we're not just trying to reach Jewish people to believe that Jesus is Messiah. We want Gentiles, non-Jewish people, to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so he said, we want to have a ministry like that among the rest of the Gentiles. And then there's this famous phrase that comes here, but I am obligated both the Greeks and barbarians. In Paul's time, if you didn't speak Greek, you're a barbarian. You must one of those other crazy languages that were all over that area. And so he's saying, I'm obligated both to Greeks and to barbarians, to those that don't speak Greek. Of course, by this time, Latin is already starting to come in, so you're starting to have more Latin atmosphere as well. But to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the good news to you who are in Rome. So basically, I'd like to come, I'd like to come, I'm working on it, I'd like to be with you to encourage you. And then what he does is, is this little section that is so significant. These are probably the, some of the two key verses in the book of Romans because it sets the mark for what follows in the book of Romans. Two key verses that are absolutely critical to understand the book of Romans. And here's what it is. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Let's stop right there. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, some commentators and people say, well, why did he do it in a negative set? He said, I'm not ashamed. Why did he not say, I'm proud of the gospel? 
Well, I think for Paul, it's like, I'm not ashamed, even though 95% of the people around me think I'm an idiot because I'm one of these Christians. And so you see even just the way he's responding here, saying, I'm not ashamed. I know many people would be ashamed because our religion sounds so weird. Like, wait a minute, run this by me one more time. You believe that there's a dead Jew who was alive again, and uh, now he's living someplace out in outer space, and, and you want me to believe that. Is that correct? And Paul's going, not the way you describe it. No, that's not exactly the way I want to describe it. But the point is, they're saying, really? This is what you believe? I mean, are you stupid or something? I mean, who believes this kind of stuff? And Paul said, well, actually, there's quite a few of us, and we're growing. And we want to share the good news to you about who Jesus is and what he's done and what he can do for you. But at this point, you can understand why he says, well, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he says, why? Because it's God's power to salvation. It is the gospel, the good news, that changes the hearts of men and women, that brings them into right relationship with God. Because it's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. And you know that idea of belief, faith, is coming in, which is going to be another major theme in this book. God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew. Paul's very clear in the passages that we have coming up in Romans, saying God is first working with his people, the Jewish people. And he's saying these are the ones we're going to start with, but we're not stopping there. And so he's working with the Jewish people first, but we're working with the Gentiles. And by the way, by the time Paul is doing this, the church is changing. When it used to be mostly Jewish people who believed that Jesus was Messiah, now there's more and more non-Jewish, Gentile people we call it, who are now believing the gospel. And that changes things around. We know that Priscilla and Aquila, who had worked so much well with Paul, they were kicked out of Rome in 49 AD. And so what happened is a lot of the Jewish people in the churches, they're gone. They had to leave Rome. That meant there's more non-Jewish people, Gentiles, who are now coming to the church. So what's happening, the church is changing. The demographics are changing. Where it was 90% Jewish people who are now believing in Jesus, these people who are Christians, a lot of those Jews are gone, those Jewish people that are believers. But he's saying, you know what, but now we have all these people that aren't Jewish. They're Gentiles. And they are coming to faith. And so the church is changing. And Paul wants them to understand that even in the midst of the change, he's not ashamed of this. He's thankful for it. And what he wants them to say, we're going to bring it to the Jewish people. They are the ones, they are the, the, the basis, base of the tree in which that grows out of their Christianity. And so he said, first to the Jews and also to the Greek. And then notice what he says. Here's one of the key phrases from the New Testament. For in, for, excuse me, for, in God, for in God's righteousness, excuse me, for in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, you could look at that passage and say, hmm, okay, I don't see how that's that particularly significant. It actually is fully significant to understand what Paul is saying. Because what he's saying is, for it is in God's righteousness it's revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written. And then he uses a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2. How many of you have read Habakkuk chapter 2 this week? Oh, yes, yeah, Susan, I should have known that. Oh, okay. Well, it's amazing. I'm going to give you a special star to put on your shirt. 
And so what he says is, the righteous will live by faith. Now let's focus on this for just a moment. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's God's power for salvation. Everyone who believes, first to the Jew, also to the Greek. And he comes back and says, for it's God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, from the time you started faith till now. And the righteous will live by faith. And notice what he does here. He focuses on, we'll focus on that like kind of green kind of thing. He said, God's righteousness. And the question is, what does that mean? If you read the commentaries, you'll get six or seven, eight ideas of what that possibly could mean. But when it means God's righteousness, there's probably two different ways you can look at this. There's two, one I think is better than the other, but it's possible. And so there's, let's say, at least two ways you could take that phrase. For in it, God's righteousness. What does that mean? Well, let's put it this way. What it means is this. For example, the one way it can take it is it's talking about God's power to save. God's righteousness is his saving power to set man right, to do what is correct. And so it's like an activity of God of what he does. Let me give you a couple illustrations from the Old Testament. Passages that describe it this way. For example, Isaiah 46. It's peak, uh, book of Isaiah. I am bringing my justice near. It's not far away. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion. Here's the idea we're seeing when it talks about what this is going on saying this is God's saving power to bring things right to make things ways it should be and so what he's saying that's one of the ways to look at it here's another verse that kind of goes with that here's one from Psalm 89 righteousness and justice righteousness and justice are often used together in the Old Testament righteousness and justice excuse me as I went the wrong way righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne speaking to the Lord faithful love and truth go before you here again, it's this picture of saying righteousness and justice. It's describing God and how he deals with us and how he brings salvation to us. One more. It said, Lord, hear my prayer. This is Psalm 143. Lord, hear my prayer. In your faithfulness, listen to my plea. And in your righteousness, answer me. Here again, it's this idea of God is being faithful to his people. God is the one who's bringing salvation to the hurting people. He is the one who's providing for them. That's a very possible way of describing it. But there's a second one, which I think is better. These two, by the way, are not opposing each other. They actually kind of fit together well. Because the sec that's what we've seen right here is more of an Old Testament perspective. We're coming now into the New Testament way of looking at it, and we see it's very, very connected to each other, as you'll see. So notice this passage. When we talk about this passage now, what does it mean about the righteousness of God? And here, I'm trying to make this clear, here's a way of describing it. It's saying, this is the second way, when we talk about the righteousness of God in the second sense, it means this. It's a status given by God, a righteousness not from us, but given to us by God. Now I'm going to say, you want to run that by one more time? Okay, we're talking about the righteousness of God means it's a status. You've been given a certain thing. A status given by God, a righteousness not from us, but given to us from God. And there's a nice quote, it says, rather the righteousness of God involves a declaration of righteousness before God. Let me give you an illustration. I think that maybe this will work. The date was 14, 1546. That's when Martin Luther passed away. But during that time, almost 50 years before, Martin Luther had an incredible experience. As you know, he was a monk, 
Uh, he was a, a, a terrific uh, writer, and what came to him is he looked at the scriptures, he looked at the Bible, and he looked at the, all this, and he was terrified by God. He was terrified that he would never be good enough. He could never be a good enough monk. And he kept saying he could do it. And he had these couple of experiences that just terrified him. God was a terrifying thing, and he didn't know what to do about it. And so what happened is he went, and of course he kept continuing studying the, studying the Bible. And here's how Luther described it, what happened himself. He said, the righteousness of God used to hit my heart as a thunderbolt. In other words, he'd terrified by it. As you may remember, he was outside one time by a tree and he was hit by lightning. He personally didn't get hit, but it terrified him. He thought there was that terrible God who almost killed him. And he said, but here's what happened to me. The righteousness of God used to hit my heart as a thunderbolt. I immediately thought righteousness was the grim wrath of God with which to punish sin. In other words, the righteous God is going to hammer you because you're a sinner. You deserve all this. And he said, you know what? With which he punished sin. Listen to this phrase what Luther said. I hated St. Paul. That's pretty interesting when you got who's a monk and a theologian to say, I hate Paul. I hated Paul with all my heart. When I read that phrase, the just will live by faith. And Luther said, I can't do it. I can never be good enough. I try and I do the best and I fast and I do this and I do all these things that I'm supposed to do as a good monk and as a good theologian. And I, I'm, I'm still a sinner. I continue to sin. God is wrathful. He's going to destroy me and he's going through all this. And all of a sudden, his great time when all of a sudden this all came together for him. He went back to a guy who was from his own group, the Augustinian group, and he said, I consulted St. Augustine. Augustine had been dead, by the way, for a long time at this point, but he was well known. He said, I consulted St. Augustine on the passage, this passage, what do we mean by the righteousness of God? Then I began, I began glad, for I learned and I saw that the righteousness of God is his mercy through which he regards us and keeps us just. Thus was I comforted. In other words, he understand, I had totally misunderstood the understanding of that passage. The righteousness of God is not how God is so righteous and he's going to destroy you because you're a sinner. It's saying God is going to say, you're right, you are a sinner. You're right, you deserve judgment, but I'm not going to give you that. In fact, what I'm going to do is do something totally different. It's going to be, I'm going to give you my righteousness and take away your sin. That's the best job, the best thing you've ever had. And it changed Luther, and it changed our world, and particularly as he went on with it. Notice what he did. Uh, one of the writers called Heiko Olbermann, a good Finnish guy, wrote it this way. He says, we don't realize what happened with Luther, what a bombshell that was when all that happened. When Luther realized it's not about merit, about trying hard, see if you can be good enough, maybe you'll be able to get to heaven. He said, it's not about that at all. Here's what he wrote. He said, Luther's discovery about the fact that the righteousness of God is not like God's going to hammer you, but God's going to give you his righteousness to you and give you salvation. He said, Luther's discovery was not only new, it was unheard of. 
It rent the very fabric of Christian ethics, reward and merit, so long undisputed as the basic motivation for whole human action was robbed of their efficacy. In other words, the whole world is changing. You say, do you understand this? For century after century, the whole thing was work hard, do your best, Try to do this. Maybe you'll get to go to heaven. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll have to go to hell for a while or at least go into purgatory for a while. Maybe you can do this. If, maybe if you give money, maybe if you do that, if you do a novena, you go all these things. Maybe, you're never going to be sure, but maybe you're going to be accepted by God. And Luther took that and went boom and blew it right out of the church. Now, it's not like they all decided to go with him, but many of them did. And suddenly there was the understanding of saying, is that what this is all about? The righteousness of God is God sees us in our sin. He knows that we are sinner, but yet he has taken his righteousness and imputed it to us. We who deserved death have given, now we've got life. He imputes that to us. And it's because of that we have a relationship with God that is so special and so wonderful because we don't have to try to merit. I don't have to keep saying, am I good enough? Am I good enough? He said, no, you're not good enough. That's not the point. The righteousness of God is that God imputes his righteousness to you. And because of that, you have life. You have hope of knowing that one day you'll be with Christ forever. And that changes everything. Now, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, many people came to that belief as well. And many people died because of that faith. Many of them were martyred. But God was with them. And God used Martin Luther to make a huge impact on our world. Tom Schreiner, who's one of the good writers on this, put it this way. He's just trying to describe what we talk about justification, what we mean when God has made us, called us to be, makes us just, imputes us to be just. He said, this is, put it this way, it is a forensic term. He's talking about it's like a legal term. It is a forensic term, this is what justification is, signifying that people who are sinners stand not guilty before God, even though they've done bad, because of God's gift, the gift of God's righteousness. His righteousness has been given to us. It's been imputed to us. Even though we deserve death, he's been given that to us. And he's saying that changes the way we look at our relationship with God. And of course, that's where the whole Protestant Reformation came out and continues to go today. And so this passage, that little phrase, which seems like it could be, well, it's only that long, is an absolutely crucial one, particularly in our culture now, where more and more we have people know less and less about the scriptures, and they become more and more un understanding, not understanding what God is doing. Luther put it this way. He's trying to describe what we mean by justification and how this impacts him. He said this, This one and firm rock that we call justification, which we call the doctrine of justification, is the chief article of the whole Christian doctrine, which comprehends the understanding of all godliness. Saying that little phrase, understanding it in that way, is what changes the world. And it continues to change the world. Around the world where the gospel is being preached, there are men and women, none of them probably, most of them would not even know exactly what we're talking about, necessarily about justification. Some would, some would not. But they're recognizing the fact that it's not about our merits that gets us in good with God. It's God's mercy to us in which he imputes his righteousness to us. 
that allows us to have a relationship with him. That is absolutely critical to understand what the gospel is all about. The righteousness of God. The term that we described just a minute is justification. This means that God declares the ungodly to be righteous in his sight, not on the basis of their good works, but in response to their faith. That is at the core of the gospel. It's at the core of the book of Romans. If we don't get that early on in the book of Romans, the rest of it's going to seem strange. But it's important for us to understand what do we mean when we talk about justification and the righteousness of God. One of the great quotes that goes with so much well with this in Romans chapter 4 is it says, But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. This is a great little verse that summarizes what Luther was talking about. But to the one who does not work, remember he's coming out of a middle-aged thing which says, work, 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 do what you can. Maybe it'll be good enough. Maybe it won't. You have no assurance of salvation. He says, no, Romans chapter 4, the one who does not work, that is, he's not been, been doing all these things, but believes in him who declares the ungodly, that's us, to be righteous. He's not going to say, well, you are ungodly. You're right, you're ungodly. But what I've done, he's saying, I am taking your sin. I am taking the rap for you. I am willing to do that. Not only take away your sin, but I'm giving you my righteousness. No, you don't deserve it. It's all mercy. He said he declares the ungodly to be righteous. His faith is credited to righteousness. That is a powerful passage that's at the very core of this book. And my hope is that as we go into this book, as we continue on with it, that that as a foundation will help us to understand what does it mean, what Christ has done for us, the difference it makes in the hope that we have in the gospel. Two things I want you to think about as we close. If you truly understand what Paul is saying, that we, by the righteousness of God, even though we're sinners and we've failed and we've messed our lives up, he's saying Christ has not only forgiven us, but he's imputed to us his righteousness, divine righteousness from God given to us. He said, if you have that, you ought to be the most humble person in the world because you recognize, I deserve hell. And instead, what did I get? I got everything. I've been given so much. And it's not because I earned it. I didn't earn it. I didn't earn it. It was pure mercy. Pure mercy of a loving God. And he's saying there ought to be humility upon us. There's no point in the life of a Christian where there ought to be struggling with arrogance. What do we have to be proud of? Nothing. It's all of faith. It's all of Christ. It's all God's mercy to us. Humility is one thing to take out of this. If God has really done this for us, we ought to be the most humble people on the face of the earth. But the second thing that I want to ask you this, it's a question. Here it is. Could you explain justification to someone else? I don't want you to raise your hand. Please don't do that, okay? But I'm asking you, what if you got into a conversation with somebody? And they're saying, you know, I'm a sinner. I, I, man, I really blew my life out, and I've, I've done really bad things. Could you articulate, and maybe just the way that God would ask you to do it, to be able to help them to understand, saying, you know what? It's not about being good enough. It's recognizing, yes, you've done bad things. We understand that. But could you understand that God, in his mercy, 
would not only take away your sin, but give you his righteousness, his goodness, his love, his mercy to you? There's a question for you. Could you articulate that? Could you say that to another person? And if not, maybe it's an opportunity for you to think a little bit, read a little more about it, because it goes right to the core of the gospel. Father, we thank you for the book of Romans. It's an incredible book. It reminds us again of your great mercy. Father, help us to be a humble people before you. There's nothing we can say that we earned this from you. It's pure mercy. It's pure grace. And we're always going to be grateful. Be with us, Lord. Help us as we continue in our service. Prepare our hearts to come to the table where week after week we're reminded again of your faithful love that we experience new life in Christ, not because we're good, because we're not, but you are powerful and you are great. And we give you great praise. Amen.